I draw your attention to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Actually, let's start in verse 14. In verse 14, Luke 4, 14. <clears throat> and we'll read down through verse 24. <clears throat> and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee... And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we thank You, Lord, that we can come before You with praise and thanksgiving in our heart for the great, great gift of Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who uh, took on the form of human flesh. Lord, He suffered for us, He died for us, He rose again for us. Lord, that we might have salvation that we might have that which was not uh, possible for us, save through His work. Lord, we pray that You would be with those who aren't with us here this morning. Lord, for whatever reason they're unable to be here, we pray, Lord, that they would feel a sense of Your presence this morning, that their thoughts and their minds and their hearts would turn to You. Lord, that You would you minister to them through uh, the Word that they might recall the word this morning, Lord, and that you might, uh, you might draw their thoughts to you. Lord, be with us here this morning. Speak to us through your word. Feed us from your word, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's Christmas time, and the time of year that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. I enjoy this time of year, but this time of year always brings about a little bit of sorrow in my heart as well. Uh, as I look at the state of the world and our country uh, during this holiday, our nation probably more than most celebrates Christmas, uh, celebrates it to the nth degree, and uh, celebrates it without, without fail. But by and large, I don't think that most people, besides just saying something trite like, well, it's, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season, I don't think that they really have a true understanding of what it means that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I don't think that many today, uh, even sadly in the church, claim that uh, the Scripture itself is authoritative or inspired of the Holy Spirit. Jesus to them is a historical figure that may be to them kind or compassionate, may be a great teacher or a moral mentor, or a great standard of ethics. They may believe that His birth actually took place and that He may be the pattern for us in our life because of His goodness to those around us and the compassion that He showed to those uh, that He dealt with. But they don't claim Him to be God in the flesh. Uh, this birth, uh, 
the birth of a, a good child or the birth of a, a good teacher, a good mentor is not why we celebrate the birth of Christ. We celebrate the birth of Christ because He is, according to John, the Word became flesh. The Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, because when He was born and dwelt among us, we see His glory. The glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This was the Word which was in the beginning and who was with God and who was God. The God, the Word, who created all things and whom is life. This Word that became flesh and dwelt among us did so for a purpose. A purpose set forth from the opening pages of Genesis in Genesis 3, where we have the promise of the seed of the woman that would overcome the serpent. All the way through in the Old Testament to the very last chapter in the Old Testament in Malachi 4, where we have the promise of the year of the Lord and the Lord coming. We celebrate the coming of Christ because that is the promise and hope which has been given throughout the Old Testament in word, in type, in picture. And this one who is coming is the one who will save his people from their sins. Instead of going on in Ephesians this morning, I want to look at this passage in Luke, not really delving so much into the birth of Christ himself, but why we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. This one who was promised. If we ever divorce the reason for Christ's coming from the fact of his birth, then we need to rethink things. And we need to repent of that. And we need to try and remedy that, that error. Once again, we are not celebrating the birth of what I've heard so often from people talk about the sweet little baby Jesus being born. What we celebrate on Christmas is the coming of the promised one. The word of God taking on the form of human flesh for a reason, a reason set forth from eternity past. It's not some cute little story. This is a grand and miraculous display of the sovereignty of God being carried out according to his plan and his purpose to the praise of his glorious grace. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Well, here in our text, in verse 14 and 15 of Luke 4, we find that Christ in Luke's account has already begun his ministry and he's returned to the region of Galilee. We read, as the Holy Spirit leads and inspires Luke to write his gospel account, that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. This in and of itself is important for us to note. There is nothing that is unnecessary recorded for us in Scripture. There is nothing superfluous in Scripture. Uh, it is all given to us to instruct us and to edify us and to give us greater understanding of spiritual things. It, it enlightens us as to our nature. It enlightens us to the nature of God and to the nature of what His purpose and His plan is as the Sovereign One who has purposed and planned, predestined all things. It gives us insight and it opens our eyes to who God is and what God is, what all three persons of the Godhead have done, what they are doing, and what they will do. It is here that we read that Jesus and the power of the Spirit came to Galilee. Now, this is important to note as we look at the life of Christ. The Spirit was powerfully upon Him. The Spirit is in full agreement with what He is doing and what, is he, what He is accomplishing. This is the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person of the, the Trinity that existed with God the Son and God the Father from eternity, co-equals in power and authority, one Godhead. Three persons, one Godhead. This is what we often mean when we, when we use the term God. We actually mean the three persons of the Godhead. The three persons, one God. This is what we see, if you remember back in our study in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, where Paul tells us of this great work of God that is being done. God the Father planning this from eternity past, who gave us, His people, 
to Christ, that by the work of Christ, we might be made His people. That we might be chosen in in Christ, redeemed by the work of Christ, adopted as sons by the work of Christ, and then that work applied and sealed by the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead working together. Jesus is accomplishing what he was sent to accomplish as one filled with the Holy Spirit who has descended upon him. In Luke 3, we read of the baptism of Jesus in in verse 21 and 22. When all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit being upon Him. In His temptation, we see the presence of the Holy Spirit earlier in Luke 4, earlier in our text. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We'll look at this more in in a little bit more detail uh, as we go forward. But it was by the Spirit, uh, in the Spirit, that He came to Galilee. And then He came into Nazareth, in verse 16, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. This was undoubtedly a place here in Nazareth where many may have known him as evidenced by what we read later in our text that they knew that he was Joseph's son. We read here that his custom was to go to the synagogue and we'll take just a brief moment and kind of step aside here and I want to I want to look at something here or just mention something that I've been convicted of in my own life. Uh, Not in a legalistic way, uh, but this was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue, synagogue on the Sabbath. There have been very, very many times in my life where I've put other things in the past in front of going to church on the Lord's Day and worshiping with God's people. This was not Jesus' custom. His custom was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. It should also be our custom and our practice to be in the midst of God's people for worship. Uh, We can find various excuses. We've got excuses a a mile long when it comes to uh, the flesh and what the flesh wants. But we often find excuses. I know in my my life there were times when we were involved in things and, you know, we'd have to go to a match with Beth and uh, or a ball game with one of the girls, and those things took precedence over meeting with the Lord's people. And that is a regret that I have in my life. Um, I patterned at one time in my life so often for, for my kids that there was something that was more important than coming together to worship, coming together to look to God's Word with the people of God. And that is a regret that I have. If I could go back and do things over again, that would be very, very different. But it was a custom of Jesus to worship on the Sabbath day, and I believe that it should be our custom as well to worship on the Lord's day together and to look to His Word. I think how many churches today, because Christmas is on Sunday, how many churches today have closed their doors? How ironic that is. That in celebrating Christmas, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, they would close their doors to their churches as a way of celebrating Him. There's something not quite right about that. Something not quite right. But here we have Jesus. He came to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And He stood up to read. A scroll was handed to Him. The scroll of Isaiah given to him in the last part of verse 16 and verse 17. 
And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Hendrickson, one of the commentators on the New Testament, relates to us that sources, if they apply shortly after the time of Christ and of the New Testament, uh, they, they show that during the, the, the Sabbath day in the synagogue, there was a, a course of events. We, we do this very similarly every Sunday in our church. We sing a hymn. We read scripture. We pray. We sing some more hymns. Read a little bit more scripture, and then we go to the preaching of the word, and then pray again and dismiss. Well, in the Jewish synagogue, they would usually start with a thanksgiving, then they would move on to a prayer, and they would read from the books of the law, then they would read from the prophets, and then they would have a sermon or a word of exhortation, and finally the benediction by the priest or a closing prayer if the priest was absent for some reason that day. And there was a, a, a principle or a practice that was referred to in this time as the freedom of the synagogue. And it implied that any person deemed acceptable by the rulers of the synagogue, that those that were deemed acceptable were encouraged to share a message or share a word of exhortation. And within the context of our text here, it's easy to understand Jesus being invited. Look at verse 14 and 15 again of Luke 14, excuse me, Luke 4, verse 14 and 15, that he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He was, he was well known. His teaching was becoming well known as he started his earthly ministry. He teached as one having authority. So word spread of this. So the synagogues that he would go to, undoubtedly he would be given an opportunity to stand up and read the word, and then as it were, sit and give the teaching, as, as was the custom. But the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him as being one who had been deemed appropriate to, to give a message in a synagogue. And this scroll being handed to him, the scroll of Isaiah, was no mere coincidence. Uh, this is not happenstance. This is the sovereign hand of God at work. This is the Spirit of God moving, that our Lord and Savior stand up, stands up to read in the synagogue on that particular Sabbath day, and the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. Jesus takes the scroll, he unrolls it, and grows, goes right to the place where he reads from here. The place that he chooses to read from. Now, if you were to take a scroll of Isaiah, they don't have chapters and verses the way that we have them today. Jesus was very familiar with Isaiah. Very familiar with the word there. That he would be able to take the scroll and just unroll it to the place where he wanted to read. And we find here that he reads from Isaiah 61. And we had that read for us earlier uh, in the service. This is a future prophecy of the Messiah. This is a prophecy of the coming one whose birth we celebrate on Christmas. This is the prophecy concerning the one who is standing up. This is what is so amazing about this. This is the prophecy of the one who is standing up in that synagogue that day. It's a prophecy about him. Wouldn't you love to have been there when he stood up to read this? He's reading this prophecy about himself to the people of his own hometown. The Spirit of the Lord, he says, or reads, is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Jesus is reading here what correlates with so many other prophecies. Uh, we won't take time to, to search them all out. We would be here forever. But let's look at two, uh, two from this same prophet, prophet Isaiah, regarding the Spirit of the Lord being upon the Messiah. In Isaiah 11, if you want to write these down and turn to it, you can. But for the sake of time, we're going to move fairly fast here. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. We read, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This was David's father, Jesse. 
And a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We've talked about this passage when we went through Revelation 1 through 3. We talked about this, the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit of God, the fullness of the work of the Spirit of God, and the first of these is that it rests upon the Messiah. It rests upon God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, says, that Spirit is upon me. And then Isaiah 42, 1 through 7, and I want to read these seven verses because they apply to what, uh, to what is also said in this passage. Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. We'll take the time to read that in its entirety. If I can get my thin pages to separate. Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. <clears throat> Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take, <clears throat> I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind, that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This spirit that God says, I will put my spirit upon him. This prophecy of the Lord's chosen servant, who is the Messiah. This spirit that is upon our Lord, Jesus tells us, that spirit has anointed him. That spirit has set him apart as one appointed authorized, qualified to accomplish a task, the task of redeeming a people from bondage to sin and reconciling them to God. Reconciling to one who they are at enmity with because of their sin. We see this earlier in Luke when the angel Gabriel, when he came to Mary to announce the birth of the God-man Jesus Christ. In Luke 1, 26 through 35. Luke 1, 26 through 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a woman betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. How is it that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. The Holy Spirit would overshadow her. This one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, that is, in the Spirit, that has the Spirit of God upon them, has been sent to proclaim good news to the poor. This is not 
poor as in one who has a meager livelihood. This is not poor as in one who is just barely getting by. The word here denotes something far more than that. This, this, this word denotes that this, this, this one, this poor, is destitute. They have no way of providing for themselves. It's, it's someone that is so poor that they are dependent upon another for support. They have nothing of their own. So poor that their very survival is dependent on the riches or the wealth or the provision of another. Is not this the case with all of us as sinful men? Christ is saying to those in the, in the synagogue there where he's, he's teaching. He's sat, he, he's, he's read this and then he sits down. And he said, this is about me. I've been sent to proclaim good news to the poor. Why is it good news? Because if you have no money, you can't provide for yourself. If you have no righteousness, you can't provide for yourself. If you're destitute of anything that might bring you into favor, there's no hope for you unless someone provides for you what you lack. Christ came to bring good news to those of us who have nothing of our own. Nothing. Destitute. Totally dependent upon someone else for our survival. This is the case of all of us. Christ came so that we might have good news. Good news. And He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The Spirit has anointed Him to proclaim good news to the poor, and He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Psalm, 40, Psalm 146, 7-8 tells us that the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. These two are also connected here in our text this morning. That we have prisoners or captives being given news of liberty and recovering of sight to the blind in verse 18. These two being connected ideas, not necessarily separate clauses or separate ideas here in the text. Uh, this can point to, this, this is like pointing to the setting free of captives who cannot see any hope of being rescued. They can't see outside the area or outside the state in which they find themselves as men bound in dark dungeons who are set free get to see the light of day. I believe that that's what this is dealing with here, with these two being connected phrases. I don't think it's separate. Um, even, if, even if we took these as separate, I think there's plenty of evidence in Scripture that there are prophecies about Jesus Christ healing the lame, making the blind see, all these things that Christ did as proof of the fact that He was the Messiah. But I do believe that these are, are connected here. Um, and that this is dealing with those who are captives, those who are being held in, in some state of, of prison, some state of... Uh, of uh, needing a ransom, needing freed, uh, being blinded to those things that are outside of their captivity. And I think this is the case that we can, we can see in those who are in their sin, those who are, are, have not been set, set free. And he says here that to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He comes right back to that in this, in this passage. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to their blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This year of the Lord's favor here is something that is, is this acceptable year of the Lord. This is in reference to this year of Jubilee 
that we read about in Leviticus. It was a year of amnesty. It was when slaves were set free from their servitude. A year of redemption where those who had incurred debt were set free from those financial obligations. And it was a year of restoration when lost property was returned to its original or rightful owners. This, uh, that Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah, is, is referencing a year of jubilee that will end all other years of jubilee. This is the year of the Lord's favor. A prophecy of the great day of salvation where the promised Messiah has come and forever accomplishes what was typified in that year of Jubilee. And then we read in verse 20 that Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. This was often the custom for one who was to preach. He would stand and read from the scriptures and then sit down to speak. It's at this point that all eyes were fixed upon the teacher, we learn from our text. This, this most able of teachers, this, this, this most able of all the rabbis that ever entered the synagogue. Everything that Jesus taught, he taught of himself. Taught of himself. All pointing to him. All scripture points to Christ, right? And what was it that he said to them as he sat down? He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Nothing else was needed. There could be no other greater message than this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus is saying to them, I am this Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the good news that was spoken to the shepherds. I am good news to the destitute, to the one who can't afford anything and has no way of purchasing it. How many times do we read in Scripture that in Revelation, you have no money. If you're thirsty, come and drink of the water freely. Right? You that have no money, come by and eat. Good news to the destitute. He is the one who proclaims liberty to the captives. He's the one that, that provides that for them. He's the one who brings sight to the blind. He's the one that was prophesied about. This, this writing of Isaiah was 700 years prior to him standing here and saying to this congregation as he sat down after reading this text from Isaiah 61, today... This is fulfilled in your hearing. 700 years. And this is only one of the prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus said was fulfilled in Himself. The one who we, who's coming, we are celebrating this time of year. There are many more. I won't, and if, if you've got a fast hand and want to write these down to go back and later and look at them, feel free to. If you want a list of them, I'll provide them. But listen to Stephen Lawson from his book, The Moment of Truth. The most amazing fulfillments of prophecy. In this book, Stephen Lawson is dealing with the Word of God being the truth and how we can know that this Word that has been given to us, preserved for us, to know who God is, to know who we are, and to know what God has done. How can we know that this book is authoritative and how can we have confidence in this book. And he deals with a lot of things throughout history and throughout prophecy. But he says here that the most amazing fulfillments of prophecy are found in the first coming of Jesus Christ. That which we are celebrating on, on Christmas holiday. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would be born as the seed of Abraham, Jesse, and David. There are no coincidences here. There are none. This is a sovereign God ruling and overruling, overruling all things to accomplish His purpose. It was pre-recorded in Scripture centuries before His arrival that He would be born in Bethlehem from Micah 5, 2. 
that he would be born of a virgin, and his name would be called Emmanuel from Isaiah 7.14, that great people would come to adore him, and he would be called out of Egypt from Hosea 11. He would be preceded by a forerunner, Isaiah 40. He would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 61. He would be a prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy 18 and a priest after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. He would enter into his public ministry in Galilee from Isaiah 9. He would come to the temple in Malachi 3. He would live in poverty, Isaiah 53. Meekness, Isaiah 42. Tenderness and compassion, Isaiah 40 and 42. He would preach with parables, Isaiah 78, and work miracles, Isaiah 35, and bear reproach in Psalm 22, 69, and Isaiah 53. Moreover, it was prophesied that Jesus would be rejected by his Jewish brethren, Psalm 69 and Isaiah 63. And the Jews and Gentiles would conspire together against him. Psalm 2. He would be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 41 and 55. His disciples would forsake him. In Zechariah 13, he would be sold even the details of things like this. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah 11. And that price, that that 30 pieces of silver would be given for a potter's field in Zechariah 11:13. He would die with intense suffering from Psalm 22. His suffering would be for others, Isaiah 53. Yet he would be silent under that suffering, also from Isaiah 53. He would be struck on the cheek from Micah 5. His visage, his, his face, his appearance would be marred in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. He would be spit upon and scourged, Isaiah 50. Further, it was prophesied that the hands and the feet of Jesus would be nailed to a cross in Psalm 22. He would be forsaken by God and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22. He would be mocked also from Psalm 22. Gall and vinegar would be offered to him, Psalm 69 and that lots would be cast for his clothing in Psalm 22. He would be numbered among the transgressors, yet intercede for his murderers in Isaiah 53. He would die, but not a bone of his body would be broken. Exodus 12 and Psalm 34. He would be pierced, Zechariah 12. He would be buried with the rich, Isaiah 53. His flesh would not see corruption. Psalm 16. He would be raised from the dead. Psalm 16 and Isaiah 26. He would ascend to heaven. Psalm 68. And and he would be seated at the right hand of God the Father. In Psalm 110. Each and every single one of these prophecies and much more were recorded hundreds of years before God sent His Son who would be born in Bethlehem. Lawson even records that it should be noted that many of these prophecies were brought about by sinful men and fulfilled through the actions of Jesus' own enemies who stood to lose the most from their very fulfillment. But God, in His sovereignty, His power, His authority, His wisdom works it all to His glory and to accomplish that which He set forth to accomplish. Well, if all these prophecies were so well known by the Jews and they came about, how in the world did they miss Him? How did they miss Him? How could they say as Scripture records for us, away with Him? Or, Crucify him, screaming at the top of their lungs to release a prisoner and crucify the Son of God. They didn't want this kind of Messiah, did they? They didn't want him. They wanted someone, a a king, a ruler, 
to free them out of bondage and oppression to Rome. They wanted someone to defeat the mighty Roman army and take the throne to rule them independently, to rule them according to the way that they desired to be ruled. So instead of seeing what was their greatest need, their chief need, they looked only to that which was physical and they remained in bondage, oppressed by sin, poor, destitute, and blind. Jesus turned to them this day, on this Sabbath day, in that synagogue and said, all these things that we've read and they have been fulfilled today in your hearing. And then only a few verses later, if you look down in our text, only a few verses later, they rejected His Word. The whole synagogue where He preached this message was filled with wrath. They drove Him out of town into the edge of the hill so they could throw Him down the cliff. When they should have been falling on their faces before Him. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. When they should have been bowing down before their God who was in their midst. They sought to throw Him off a cliff, a cliff that He Himself carved into existence by the power of His Word. You see, there's no greater oppression. This is what they didn't get. There is no greater oppression than that which is pressed upon mankind, than that which is found being oppressed and being captive to sin. There's no greater slavery than a slavery to sin and sin's master. There is no greater tyrant than death. And what is the wages of sin? It's death. Look where you will. There is no greater bondage. Not Egypt. Not Babylon. Not Rome. They are nothing compared to what mankind in sin is in bondage to. This is eternal. Yet those who heard Jesus preaching this and reading of freedom and of recovery of sight, of liberty from oppression, couldn't see past the physical. They couldn't see the true reality was something much deeper, something much greater, something that needed vastly more, that they needed vastly more than freedom from some man made society. Like Egypt, like Babylon, like Rome, or like what we're facing today. And our oppression here is small compared to what's going on in China and other parts of the world. But even their greatest need in the people in those nations is not freedom from China's ruling authority. It's freedom from sin. This is why the Messiah came. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. If you turn to Matthew 1, verse 18... Matthew 1, verse 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place. Why? To fulfill what the pro- was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What did the angel say to Joseph? That you're going to call his name Jesus, for he's going to save you from Rome? It's not what he said, was it? He said, He shall save his people from their sin. He will be God with us, Emmanuel. He is coming to save his people from their sin, to be good news to the destitute, to the poor, to proclaim liberty to those captive to sin, to open the eyes of those blinded by sin, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed by it. He shall save his people from their sin. Well, have you experienced that liberty? Have you experienced that freedom from bondage? Have your eyes been opened and received sight? If you have, praise Him. Praise Him. Glory in Him. Glory in Him. Praise the day that He was born, the day that we celebrate today. Praise the day in the eternity past when God the Father placed you in Him. Chosen in Him. Praise the day of your adoption, which He predestined. Fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Praise the day when redeeming dawn, redeeming grace dawned in your heart. Everything carried out according to the plan and the purpose of God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ, God the Son, applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been looking at in Ephesians, isn't it? Well, and if there's some here who haven't experienced this, then your only option is to look to Him. Anything else leaves you still poor and destitute. Anything else leaves you still captive, leaves you still blind. There is no other source of salvation apart from Jesus Christ who said He has good news to proclaim. He has good news. Good news to proclaim to what? The poor, the destitute. Those who are without and have no way of obtaining. The one who was sent to proclaim liberty and recovery of sight, the one who will set at liberty the oppressed and to proclaim the Lord's favor. Look to Him. He is your hope. We don't have any hope outside of Him, do we? You know, I think too, a lot of times we, you know, we, look, we look at the Jews and what they did and we, uh, we kind of look down our noses at them and then we turn around and do the same type of thing. Find myself wishing that you know, we could just overthrow what it is that we have around us right now. The godlessness of this country and the growing godlessness of this country. There's only one solution for it. Only one. We could overthrow this government and then turn up 10 years later, 15 years later, the same type of thing. The only solution for it is for this good news to be preached. That's it. Hearts have to be changed. The Holy Spirit has to take out those hearts of stone and replace them with a heart of flesh. He has to do a work. It's what revival is. The moving of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit drawing people to Him. That changes people. You'll never find a changed person unless the Lord changes that person. Unless the Spirit of God rejuvenates, regenerates, redeems that person. That's a new creature. 
That's a new creation. That's when old things pass away and all things become new. That's the change we want to see. And if the Lord moves and works in such a way that He would bring revival, all this government stuff will take care of itself. And if we have to go through persecution and trial to get there, let it be so. Let it be so. We have to stand, though, and proclaim what the Lord has given us to proclaim. That it's through Him. That He is the way. He is the one in whom we may tell others, turn. You want to hear good news? Right there is good news. You want to be free of your burden? Go to the cross of Christ. That's where you find it. All right, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we have a Savior. We have a Savior who is able. We have a Savior that is sufficient. We had a willing substitute that satisfied the wrath of Almighty God against sin. Lord, forgive us of our oftentimes petty thoughts and our selfishness and our uh, flirting that we do with the world and the things of the world. Lord, we pray that You would drive those things from us. Lord, that we would be tied off to the rock that, that never moves. That we would be fastened to the, to the rock. That we would take heed left, lest we drift away. Lord, take these uh, stumbling statements that were made this morning, Lord, and pray that uh, You would just cause minds to be uh, meditating upon the Word of God here this morning throughout the week. Lord, that You would cast off any thoughts of that come from man and aren't uh, in line with Your Word and that which You'd have us to understand and to know and to rest in. Lord, be with us throughout this week. Lord, may we truly understand what it is that we celebrate when we celebrate the birth of, of our Savior. That we celebrate the providence and the predestination of of a sovereign God who has made a way that lost men might be redeemed. Lord, give us thankful hearts. Lord, give us hearts that are desirous of sharing this with others. Lord, that we might point others to Christ. Lord, we know that He is our only hope. Lord, we pray that we might share that with others. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.